Hello and welcome to episode triple two for the second time of the Waters Wasteland podcast. I'm your host, Wei Shen, and hey, Tony, you're here with me today. It's like going back in time. For those that don't get the the joke there, that uh, last week Wei Shen said it was episode two two two, and then as I was actually going through and splice everything up, put it up online, I reckon I saw it was episode two twenty one that we had just recorded, and then uh, Shen's like. Oh yeah, you go and record it. I, I was like, no, we're good. We're just gonna, we're just gonna pop this up. Yeah, you, you gave me a, like I thought I had a, a a little time to you know record, so I actually recorded like, hey, uh, welcome to episode two two one, and um, you were like, nope, it's already nope. it's already up. Don't bother. We're all about the highest quality here at the uh, Waters Wavelength Podcast. <laughs> <laughs> well, you, I think you did it more to like mock me, didn't you? A little bit of that yeah. too, yeah. Course, course. Yeah, yeah. Mm. Anyway, <laughs> so before we get to our guests for today, do you want to tell us a little bit about what we've been putting up um, on the website this week? Yeah, sure. We've got uh, four subscribers listening. Uh, we have three different stories that really kind of break down the S&P and IHS market merger from a bunch of different angles. So highly recommend uh, checking those out. I don't think that you're going to find that kind of coverage, that kind of in-depth coverage anywhere else. Um, we Joanna Wright wrote a story about uh, the market data fight uh, over, fee, over fees, uh, over market data in Europe. A lot of interesting things happen over there. Many, many similar things happen here. But So she tackles it from the European side, but there's stuff that can certainly be gleaned uh, if you are based here in the U.S. or in Asia. Um, and finally, uh, two other features. We have uh, agent-based modeling. Rebecca did this deep dive. She spoke with a couple uh, quants about this, but also a couple people who are physicists. And as you can tell, I don't really, I can't even really say that word. So it's, You said it right. You said it oh, right. Thank you. Uh, so interesting story there. And then Max Bowie wrote 3,500 words on just the testing, how vendors go about the testing of new products, new platforms, and basically how they try and essentially break this thing that they just created to find all the vulnerabilities before it goes out and causes an embarrassing outage. So yeah, we've got a lot of good stuff this week. It was a good week. Okay. Well, yeah, let's get to our guest for this week. He is no other than uh, John Lin. He's the founder and chairman of Grasshopper, which is a Singaporean prop trading firm. And uh, we've spoken with John before, and a couple of stories actually have been up on our website about Grasshopper and some of the work that they're doing with Google Cloud as well. Um, but I, I thought to get John on uh, was really interesting because he's been a trader for about 30 years. <laughs> Sorry, John. Um, <laughs> But anyway, that's a lot of experience there, but he's kind of taken a step back. Now he he has essentially retired, although he so he's not involved in the day-to-day -day operations at at Grasshopper anymore. He's still chairman, obviously. Um but yeah, he took the he's taken the time to kind of focus on other things that he didn't get to do while running Grasshopper. So he's a part of a few masterminds, which is like a collection of CIOs uh coming together to talk about big ideas and uh, some potential solutions to problems that, uh, yeah, in, in, in the world today, not necessarily, you know, in the financial world. So yeah. we talk uh, a lot about uh, blockchain and also um, the spatial web, which is basically the next generation of internet yeah. protocol. Yeah. So let's, let's get straight to that. 
See you next week. See you next week. Alright, this week we have John Lin, founder and now chairman of Grasshopper, a Singaporean prop trading firm. Hi John, thanks for joining me on the podcast. How are Hi, you doing? Ken. I'm doing great, thank you. It's great to be here. Cool. I mean, um, let's talk a little bit about the travel bubble that has been now postponed between, you know, Singapore and Hong Kong. And you were saying to me earlier that you were you you meant to be here on the second of December. You know, how do you feel about that now? <laughs> yeah, well, it's it's very interesting to see how um, different governments handle the COVID crisis. So what you're really seeing is is everyone falling on the spectrum of, you know, it's like the the distribution curve of reactivity, right? Mm-hmm. And I think that's that's the most interesting thing that I take out of it. Uh, when when COVID hit, I mean, of, of course, in Asia, we started hearing about it in January, February. And and then I was actually in uh, Canada, in Vancouver, when the new North American news cycle grasped hold of the situation and then just spun it. Uh, incessantly in their, you know, surround sound echo chamber uh, style of news. So, it, you know, it was interesting to see that style of handling versus sort of uh, um, an Asian developed nation style of handling versus sort of, you know, other countries that just sort of put it on the wayside and see what others would do. So it, I think it's unfortunate that we don't get to travel I do think that it's prudent. The fact that you have two cooperating countries that um, largely have a handle on things, trying their best to figure out how to do these green bubbles, I think it's, it's, it's a great thing. Um, in retrospect, we'll be able to add a lot more judgment, but you know, what's to say right now, right? You're, you're protecting your country as best as you can. Um, so it's just unfortunate that we all have to put up with this. I'm not exactly sure how we'll look at this a year from now. Did, did the airline that you booked with just uh, cancel it or is it has it just been like are you able to push your flight to another date? I decided to go to a different country actually. Oh. <laughs> so okay. I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a holiday refugee uh, <laughs> although it's not really holiday this I'm going to, for work to uh, Indonesia. Ah okay okay oh mm. cool. <laughs> <laughs> Well, yeah, we'll see when uh, the travel bubble can actually open up and uh, how things will be like then. I don't know if I don't even know how that would fully like play out in terms of uh, you know how people would. I, th- I think if if they go to each country, they have to like stay in a ho- in a separate room for like eight hours until their test is done or something like that. Um, yeah, we don't really know the full details until oh well, it's gonna and uh, until it happens really. Yeah. Sure, and then there's the the macro detail above that, which is what is the appropriate level of of travel restrictions, right? Mm-hmm. You know, versus uh, economic penalty for all of this, um, and that's that's a much much harder question to answer. Yeah. Yeah. So, so John, uh, I like to I want to dig a little bit into your past today. Let's uh, reflect and uh, on on the many. Oh, maybe I shouldn't say many. On the years that that has happened before this year. I mean, you've been a trader all your life. Um, Perhaps could you walk me through, you know, what working in the trading pits was like? You know, what what kind of fueled your passion then? And and then how how that led you to create Grasshopper? 
Well, you know, I started out in the trading pits in 1990, as soon as I graduated from university. I had a degree in engineering, but I did not want to do any of that. As soon as I saw the trading pits, which was before 1990, um, I, I took one look and I was like, that's where I want to be. So I, I knew for a couple of years before I graduated that I needed to get into the pit to try my hand at this, this crazy thing called open outcry trading. Um, and I did that for uh, 15, 16 years until, um, and, and that journey started in Chicago at the Chicago Mercantile Exchange. Uh, I spent some time there clerking, then trading, then board of trade, then uh, life, which is in London. And then I was um, uh, sent from London to Tokyo, where I traded uh, what was then known as um, the uh, Osaka for, for trading uh, the Nikkei 225, mm -hmm. as well as uh, TIFEX, which was the Euro Yen, and TSE, which was the JGB. And then I ended up in Singapore in 1993, late 1993. Um, so anyway, all of that ended around 2005. I had, so I, I, I think the biggest takeaway is number one, that was the best job in the world. I love that job so dearly. It was really like you're you're almost like a cowboy, and to, and I feel very privileged that I had uh, over a decade of being part of that, and and really really loving um, what that job represented. Um, but it, I knew even from the beginning, even from the early 1990s, everyone was saying it's gonna all gonna go electronic. This is all gonna go one day. So my attitude through that 15 year career was I'm gonna hang on till the end because I love this job so much. And that's interesting because that primes you for thinking about how many people around us think, which is, I know a certain kind of reality. I love it, I cherish it, and I don't really wanna live. Um, that, that's not really relevant in, in my scenario. I, I was looking forward, but I love the job enough that I was like, I'm gonna stay here as long as I can. And that's what I did, and especially in the last, five years from sort of the dot-com uh, collapse until the last days of the trading pits that I was in in Singapore, um, I knew. I knew the writing was on the wall. And in that time, I started wearing a headset that connected me to my clerk so I could trade uh, in the pit and electronically at the same time. I mean, I, I know it's laughable now, but that was an innovation back then. <laughs> Um, so you got to see that, that whole curve. And then what happened is in 2006, after taking six months off, I, uh, you know, it was almost like gravity pulled me back into trading. I, I was resigned to, you know, become a teacher or open a small business or do whatever with, um, with my savings. And I ended up going back to what was then known as an arcade and getting on a terminal and started to move things around um, I found a little bit of traction and that was that was the beginning of how I started grasshopper literally with me myself sitting at a terminal trying to figure things out and then I hired one person another person after around a dozen people I started to realize that we needed to build our own tech at least some semblance of our own tech and then we started hiring technologists and you know now 15 years later, here we are. Mm. I'm interested to know though, because like that was, I mean, trading has been such a huge part of your life. Um, and 
and it's something that you are definitely still passionate about. You know what? Uh, and now you've you've kind of taken a back seat to that. Um, you're no longer like I, I guess directly involved in like day to day operations. You know what made you decide to um, I guess shift gears? Well, th that first phase of my life being in the open outcry pits, um, that was that was sort of that that was a very distinct phase. It was the phase that taught me, you know how you rise up from being the, the, the newbie in a pit to being a veteran and how you work the mechanics and the, the game, the, uh, how you gamify that situation, right? And, and that was very, very important. Uh, the second part, which started uh, after uh, 2006 was, was building a company. And that was uh, taking risks that were not constrained to a trading pit. That was, you know, deciding whether you're going to take uh, all the money that you earned for the previous year and invest it in technology or, in, or hire people. Um, that was a fascinating phase from 2006 to, to now, because not only did it teach me how to build um, a company, teams, people, technology, but also the market was also teaching me, right? So there was the, the, the firsthand knowledge that I, I would go through and like, wow, you know, managing a team of 20 people is not the same as managing a very close group of five people and, and same for 50 people or 75 people or you know, a thousand people, let's say. Um, so there's that, but then there's also what technology is telling you because, you know, maybe in 2007 or 2008, uh, high frequency trading was sub-second trading and stuff to be measured in the, you know, the hundreds of milliseconds. Um, within just a few short years, high-frequency trading was microsecond trading, you know, a thousandth of the paradigm that you were at before. And now it really, it's, a, it's you know, uh, maybe a thousandth of that. Um, so you have all these things that were um, asymmetric edges that, that, you know, we found and enjoyed is the, is the wrong word, but, you know, we utilized and then they would erode and then another one comes. So those were basically increasing, um, an increasing frequency of disruptive cycles that started to wash up against our, our, our ankles and then our knees, right? And, and higher and higher. And then you start to, you start to feel the pulse of that. Um, I've had enough of that now in the sense that now I, I get it. And now I'm a believer that this cadence of disruptive technology is not slowing down. And that's one of the big reasons for um, my choice to retire. Mm. Yeah. Okay, so I mean, just looking at these uh, disruptive uh, technologies and how, how that disruption is going to continue and maybe going to accelerate even faster than it, it did in, you know, in the past few decades. Um, how have you seen the capital markets or, or your or institutional trading firms actually deal with this disruption? Do you think that they are, uh, I mean, certainly they are, they are involved in it and they are considering it, but how can they adapt quickly enough to, um, I guess, meet the challenges of this disruption and or to take advantage of the disruptive technologies that are uh, coming into the market? Well, see, you have to be very careful in, in who we're grouping into 
um, this subgroup that you're talking about. You said trading firms. There's lots of different kinds of trading firms. You know, back in the old days, people would say, I'm a trader. And then to any real trader, they'd be like, okay, does that mean he's a broker? Is he uh, an executing trader? Is he an independent trader? And similarly, when we talk about trading firms now, everyone, everything is a trading firm. You know, I, I like to say like for Grasshopper ourselves, are we a trading firm? Or are we basically a logistics firm moving around packets like Amazon moves, moves packages around? I mean, in a way, everything has coalesced to a certain kind of simplicity. So if you say, how do firms deal with this? Uh, I would say that many of them are just starting to wake up. Um, and I think COVID was a great accelerant to them waking up to this, this shifting paradigm. Um, how do they harness it? Well, that's not so easy. That's, that's akin to saying, how do I change a person who's very much accustomed to the way they were thinking in the past? And the more that person or that firm has as an attachment to the past, legacy, tradition, uh, all those kind of things that keep you mired well, then the harder it is to, to surf those waves of disruption, right? Because if you think about it, what we're really saying is the pulse of the change is accelerating. And how most people look at the paradigm is, where, where, sh where am I? Where should I be? Static. Yeah. Whereas what we're talking about is dynamic, where minimally we're talking about the change of things or, or the first derivative of things. And we're saying the change of things is actually accelerating or the second derivative is accelerating. So it's, it's almost like the first thing you have to do is change your attitude. There is no static place. There is no right and wrong. Really what you have to grasp at is change is happening. Change is the constant. I know that's a little bit nerdy and like mathematical uh, 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 way of looking at it, but but what I tell people is don't look at where you are and what's right and what's wrong in a binary sense. Look at it, look at the first derivative. Look at the, the rate of change that you yourself are going through or you or your firm is going through and seize upon that as a necessary constant. Your change is the constant you have to seize and, and grasp at. That's, that's the big attitude adjustment because uh, what I note is that the people that tend to be the people in the firms, the entities, organizations that tend to get left behind are the ones where their attitude is, tell me where I should be and I'll stay there. That's the wrong attitude. Mm -hmm. It should really be about what do I need to process? How do I need to look at uh, where I need to go? And then to think that way in terms of constant progress, that's the way to be. So minimally, I would say, you know, change your attitude around innovation. Don't fear it. Go for it. Well, for banks, you know, uh, they have created uh, innovation, uh, innovation hubs within their, or, or I guess separate to their regulated entity. You know, is that the... Uh, that, that's that's how they have been approaching innovation and they, they see that that's a way that they can do experiments without, um, uh, I guess, necessarily impacting their current operations. Perhaps if they do come up with something innovative that they could they could um, apply to their current operations, they, they would. But uh, is that, 
do you think that that is the right way they've been approaching innovation or do you think that they should look at it in a different way? Well, that depends on whether you, you, <laughs> that depends on my perspective of whether I'm running that bank or I am just a global citizen, right? Because if I'm running the bank, I would say, sure, you know, um, protect what we do well and profitably and have a little sandbox. Okay, that's a very, very reasonable thing to do. Now, as a global citizen, I'm kind of like, you know, I look at the situation, there's a bunch of banks, and then there's a bunch, you know, let's call them the incumbents. And then there are people that are really trying to disrupt. And I would have to look at the past record of this, right, to, to kind of give me a semblance of how I might extrapolate this curve. And if I was to extrapolate the curve, say, the problem with the incumbents is their attitude. So this is, you know, throwback to the last question. Now, if they want to take little teeny baby steps until the sandbox proves something, and then they're going to slowly change. Well, they're very, very vulnerable to the new style of disruption. And the new style of disruption, when you talk to the people that are really trying to change the, the world, is they don't give a crap about the banks. They don't care about their position, their current business, anything like this. So what they're trying to do is change things from the inside out. They're open source, right? They're available to anyone you want to work on in that protocol, go for it. They, um, how they're not protective. So how they share information, even amongst themselves, um, and it is in a completely different attitude to banks. And this was, this is akin to when I started um, uh, Grasshopper, uh, I used to keep copious notes on every meeting I had, any intel I gathered, I would try to, you know, um, confirm uh, things that I thought through multiple different sources and figure out what everyone is doing. Around five or six years ago, I completely stopped doing that. And the, the reason is, is because I, real, I realized that the true innovation, it didn't matter. Innovation was a currency onto itself, meaning I could share it. No one's going to be able to catch up in time by the time that this, this, this innovation erodes into standard practice and is no longer an edge. So it was not really worth the effort required to protect my information. So now going to your scenario with the incumbents and let's say banks and how they might, you know, what's the right strategy. I actually have a lot of sympathy for them because, you know, and the truth is I'm still an old school guy in some ways, right? They have, they have tens of thousands of employees, hundreds of thousands of employees across the sector. Um, I get it. It's not easy to move things across departments or to have someone at the top take a stand and say, this is what we're going to do with innovation. I totally get that. But that is also potentially their death sentence. Mm. Right? That attitude is, is, that attitude will not buy you time in the current style and pace of disruptive technology. Okay, well, let, let's look at one disruptive uh, technology. Um, and, and I know uh, my editor is going to cringe when I when I say this word. It's it's blockchain. Okay. Um, and 
and let's talk a little bit about how it has been approached in the in the in the incumbents, how they have looked at it, um, and and uh, you know what what do you think about blockchain applications in within the capital market scene, and you know have they let's back up a few years like four years maybe up to two years ago blockchain was seen as it's going to decentralize everything with that the capital markets knows um exchanges the way that banks uh, communicate and exchange documents uh but then fast forward now uh, it's 2020 and the uh, the the applications that we were meant to see and the promises that blockchain was supposed to deliver on have been um well slow <laughs> Uh, have not come to. They have not. They have not proved its. Uh, its. Um, it, its worth. Um, so, has the approach uh, that the incumbents taken to a blockchain been wrong, or have they been? Have they been looking at it the, the in in the wrong way? Basically, I mean, have they just been? Did they have too large a, a dream about it of how they could actually use it? and not realize that, okay, perhaps at a smaller scale for very specific or very new market kind of uh, um, scenarios, it could work really well there. But changing something that already exists, uh, that is a lot harder than um, what we ex what they expected, not me. <laughs> I, I don't know anything about it, right? Uh, what they expected. What are your thoughts on that? Remember, uh... Remember, oh, you may not remember, but I remember when email came out and email came out and everyone's like, oh, there goes the fax machine, there goes paper, there goes books, you know, everything's going to be digital. And then, you know, look around, I got paper and books and maybe not faxes, but it, it takes a while. So it's true. The blockchain is a computationally expensive way of keeping records. Is it really the answer to everything? Well, it might be an interesting answer if the, the computational uh, uh, cost of this is driven down, which will eventually happen just simply because of Moore's law. Um, but then you would also say like, why do we need to do this? And is it worth it? Is it worth disassembling the current paradigm for this? And for sure, you know, someone can, can say, oh yeah, well, the efficiency that we add to the structure because we can remove middlemen, it might be worth it. And, and all these people are right. But similar to like email, you know, they're right. But it, it, it's like, it's like when, when people give uh, stock tips, everyone is right in some time frame. What's the time frame they're talking about? So, you know, with blockchain, I think it's an amazing tool. I think that it got a little bit overhyped in 2017, whatever. Um, that's forgivable. That's not blockchain's fault. That's human nature's fault. <laughs> it's progressed along in 18, 19, and 20. I mean, literally, if you were to look at the technology around um, blockchain, cryptocurrencies, tokenization, encryption, all that stuff, it, it is, <laughs> we're only talking about three plus years, but it's hugely improved. And you can see the market shifting. Um, and you can see a building momentum. So when you ask a question, is the take up slow? I don't actually think it's slow. It's just that we overhyped ourselves mm. and it's where it's supposed to be. I mean, it is developing in a way that I don't know um, what the demographics are of the people who listen to this, but the people that are like very entrenched in normal um, industry, 
like they don't realize that there is a massive network of sometimes unpaid people that look at this but contribute to all these projects it's a it's a social phenomenon that's really happening so that's it's definitely not something that you would say is slow it's something to be observed because that phenomenon is extrapolated becomes a very very big vulnerability for the incumbents who do not understand this inside to out decentralized growth model so that's a very big danger for them you asked if the incumbents were wrong to take their time um again that's a that's an an answer depending on the time frame like a person could say of course they're not wrong they would have wasted a couple of years and whatever um in 18 and 19 and you know the ico uh, bubble collapsed and blah 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 um but i go back to what i said it's really about the attitude it's not about price action or anything like that it's, it's just about the attitude because now you're going to see in two years from now we're not going to be saying the same thing yeah i mean but just looking at the large-scale projects that have been out there that like for example asx definitely uh you know kudos to them for actually taking that jump and saying out, outrightly saying we want to replace chess we want to replace our uh settlement and clearing platform with a blockchain or a dlt enabled platform uh we'll just use blockchain for ease of uh, communication here but and then we have the dtcc coming out with the trade information warehouse project that uh, obviously uh, has not really been kicked off the ground yet it's just going to take uh i'm just saying for large-scale projects it's going to take time and it's just that, um, as you as you said earlier, you know, human nature. We tend to overhype things, and when we're really interested in something, we just go like, "Yes, I'm all in," and uh, this is what is going to happen. This is the timeline that we're looking at, and we're going to execute it by then. But you know, looking at what um, well this year has taught us, maybe, um, well, things take time, especially when they're you know dealing with large scale projects such as a uh, an, a settlement platform and and a, a trade information you know warehouse kind of project so i think maybe um i'm not saying that they're wrong to to do that i'm just saying that it, it just takes um a lot of time yeah sure well, what i would ask those people is how fast can you change your mind how fast can you pivot and and that's where they would be like well you know we made a great choice not being involved in 18 and 19. and then i would say all right if you decided right now that this was the right thing to invest in. How long would it take you guys to actually change your corporate strategy in a way that's actually meaningful and at least at pace with the industry? No one's even talking about catching up to where the industry is, just at least at pace. And the fact is that they would probably be like, oh, they'll take us, I mean, come on, what are they gonna, uh, they're not gonna say six months. They're probably gonna say like 18 months. And in 18 months, now you actually have to be like, oh, we have to catch up to the curve, which means that you can't just keep pace with where the industry is going. You have to accelerate because you're trying to catch the industry. Mm. And if you don't catch the industry, then the new people that can disrupt you will have a massive edge over you. So like, do they see that picture? Um, maybe they don't see that picture in 18 months, but I would say in five years, how many proper leaders in the industry 
would see that picture and I would say most of them. So, okay, so let's go with five years. Maybe it's three years. I don't know what it is. But now you see like the problem is, is that once you make a decision, how fast can you change? And then how much do you have to catch up? That's the real question. And I would say that they're not, they're not that well positioned to that. Um, and, and, and that doesn't even bring in a massive, massive factor, which is mistakes, mm-hmm. failures, errors, which is all part and parcel of this, you know, innovation, disruptive technological uh, cycle that we're going through, which right. is now you're assuming you can't make any mistakes, but, but those other guys, right, where the industry is really going is making mistakes all the time, learning and sharing. So now you're siloed, you're a bank, you're an exchange, whatever it is, and you're going to go do it by yourself, cling to the fact that you want to protect something. Well, I don't know. You know, I, I think that uh, every little every little uh, requirement you add on to that makes it a taller and taller task. And that's one reason that I wanted to leave. Right. That's one reason that I wanted, at least for myself, to be able to pull back, not be in the heat of this battle all the time, because those are very difficult decisions. And to see what's greater, you know, what is actually happening? And how do we how do I position for this and how do I position the people around me for this? Mm. Yeah, how do we do some good? Yeah. Okay. So, yeah, tell me a little bit about some of the projects uh, that you're currently involved in and about the masterminds that uh, that you are working on. Uh, who is involved in that and uh, what are some of the big topics that uh, that you're discussing? Oh, let's see. All right. So I, I guess in the last couple of years when I started um um, navigating around my planned um, extrication from trading as much as I loved it. Really what I'm doing though is, is actually trading at a different level, okay? Um, but to get out of, out of that um, high, high frequency algorithmic proprietary trading, which really does take a lot of attention. It's very hard to do that and other things well. You know, it's, a, it's, it's competitive, it's difficult. Uh, I started to understand, you know, all the things that very good leaders try to do. Like, how do you surround yourself with people that you can trust? Uh, Yet they're diverse enough that you're getting ideas, right? There's a fringe of innovation and creativity that's not uh, homogenous. And uh, I started networking with people and understanding that um, a concept that that I I saw uh, a couple of years ago and I just started participating in and I realized was really great was um, I, the word that I use for it is mastermind and I, I would define it as just a, a loose and diverse collection of people that get together, transact ideas, values, creativity in a largely non-transactional manner. Okay, there's all kinds of permutations of this. Um, but that's how I, I define it. Um, what I really liked about it is you can start to assemble people. And when you concoct um, what the container is that you are all in, um, you can have a very high level of conversation. So people are not vetting each other and saying, like, what's in it for me? You immediately go to this level. of like, look, we're all pre-vetted. We all have a positive intent. Uh, we all understand, um, you know, you have to mix a little bit of old school with a little bit of new school kind of thinking, but really what it's about is doing something positive for, for each other, for society, et cetera. And then you just start throwing ideas around and it's pretty interesting. And you support each other in these mm-hmm. masterminds. 
So you support each other um, with feedback, you support each other with, uh, with thinking, but you also support each other with, with style and attitude. And, uh, and for instance, one of the masterminds that, we, that, that I do, I'm a co-founder in this mastermind in Asia called uh, Co-Mastermind. And we decided to carve out a special facet of Co-Mastermind just for CIOs. And we have about 20 to 30 CIOs, all of them uh, running billion dollar companies. I was like, wow, you know, wouldn't it be great for, for CIOs in a way, they're kind of the architects of the new world because they get the first look and decide what to throw their heft behind. So it's like, can we support these people as a very high level C-suite leader? And can we bring them together instead of in competition with some level of camaraderie? Can we, uh, you know, I, I'll tell you this as a founder, and, and uh, I was, you know, leader of, of Grasshopper for a long time. You know, one of the things that a lot of people don't talk about is that role sucks. It's tough. There's a lot of pressure. There's not that many people I can talk to that really understand the pressure that I face, you know. And, and similarly for a, a CIO running, you know, a $25, $50 billion company, they're under a lot of pressure. And, and what happens as you start studying human nature more and more, which I did more and more as I realized I was running people, not just machines, is uh, you realize that they, they need to gravitate towards each other. So we carved out a mastermind just for CIOs and we anchored them in a technology. That technology was uh, for us, um, someone that we knew and we loved what they were doing and checked all the boxes of what a mastermind should be working on. That was the spatial web, the next protocol of the internet. Right. Mm. So I thought that was a very creative way of, of doing a mastermind. I have a, a New York mastermind that is largely focused around, um, um, I would say, m much more around society. Uh, those are guys that weaponize social media. Those are guys that practice unconventional warfare. Um, uh, Tristan Harris, who did uh, The Social Dilemma on Netflix, is in that mastermind. Um, there are lots of very high-end neuroscientists in that mastermind. There are, you know, titans of, of capitalism in there too. Um, there's me for some strange reason. There's all kinds of crazy people like in there. And that was a very diverse one. So there are many permutations of this, but it's been, it's, they've been great resources for me to learn and also for me to contribute to other people's learning. So I think this is a, it's a great concept to, um, espouse and, and push forward to people. It's like, find a good tribe, you know, find people that aren't exactly of your opinion, but that you can trust and that have um, the, the, how, the epistemics of how they look at a situation you can respect and just cobble yourself together and just start talking about stuff. And you'll see like a lot of good stuff comes out of that. Okay, so like it's it's pretty interesting how you mentioned the spatial web. You know, it's also known as the well the next generation protocol, also um, as Web 3.0. You know, but there still isn't a clear consensus about its definition. So maybe for the benefit of our listeners, you know, to you, what it, how do you define the spatial web? Oh man, I let's see. Um, Okay, first, the caveat is this, okay? I try to understand technology as deeply as I can, but sometimes going too deep uh, is a problem too. For instance, like cryptocurrencies. 
which rabbit hole do you want to go down? There's literally like an endless number. Um, I think the spatial web can be a little bit easier in the sense that um, HTTP is the hypertext transmission protocol, right? It's, a, it's an architecture of moving around documents, which is now what we know as, uh, as, as the internet, okay? Documents have now become you know, GIFs and videos and all kinds of stuff, but it's built on sort of this archaic architecture. Um, you, can, you can creatively uh, hack, you know, the Frankenstein of, of anything around what we already have. This is true, right? But really it's inefficient and really it doesn't tell us, it hasn't adapted with how the network of humanity is growing. And what we need is the next protocol so that we can add all the things that are relevant to where we are in technology today. And those would be, as they define it, it's the HSTP, Hyperspace Transmission Protocol. And that would add, let's just say that at, at a minimum, let's just add space to uh, the tagability of this protocol. So that means in a, a pick and pack logistics a warehouse, you can have someone who is five foot six walking around with AR glasses, knowing that he needs to keep, you know, uh, two meters of social distancing from any other picker in this logistics factory, that his height, that he has a certain kind of condition, that he's 40 minutes from break or whatever it is. And you can tell him exactly where to go and to do this. And that person or that logistics warehouse can probably save 35, 40% on their labor costs. Okay, that's a very easy way of looking at it because he knows exactly where to go. He knows the height, he knows the geolocation. You can have AI tagability. Oh, well, now we go to the other low hanging fruits. He walks around with his glasses. He takes a picture of his hand going into this bin, pulling something out, takes a picture of it. There's a record of it. You put it on, you could put it on a distributed ledger or blockchain. And now there's proof of this and you have this whole chain of, of events happening and you basically have an engine of, of a fact. So now if you have a protocol that's, that can be shared across all different platforms, now you can share this protocol of exactly what happened through um, the, the supply chain all the way to the other end where you can similarly have a platform that's sharing everything. So now you understand things in so much more detail. You can have AI tagability of all of this process and being an understand, be able to predict better all the things that we need to do as a society, so we can uh, understand our supply, our demand, you know, all these all these metrics that we can measure and be much more efficient as a society. We can have less wastage of, of everything, and that's where that's where ultimately things will have to go because you know not to get on a soapbox, but we, we understand that with as many people on the world, we are overtaxing the earth. So we need to be much more efficient about things or we're gonna face an existential problem. So you sort of have multiple pressures that are pushing us this way. This is why I find the spatial web quite fascinating because I don't need to be the guy that has the, you know, the nth, plus one scenarios figured out. All I know is like, yeah, this opens up the door for every single node of, of, relevant, of relevance to figure this out and to make it easy. That's why I like that. And those are, those are the huge inflection points. We should all be watching out for and 
all be willing to to take take a risk on. Mm. That's really interesting. So, um, and, and I think this this whole chat that we've had uh, so far has been very uh, insightful and kind of like giving us a glimpse into what the future could look like individually, and then you know, I guess later on also it will eventually hit the capital markets and, and the incumbents in some way, for sure. Um, just before we uh, we close out here, I mean, could you tell me some of the things, the latest things that you've been geeking out on, you know, aside from your masterminds? And and you also have a, a personal Spotify page that uh, you have some really good gems on. I think I will, I will definitely <laughs> link your Spotify in, in our uh, podcast posts here. Oh, yeah, what have you been geeking out on? Whether it's games or anything. <laughs> sure, sure. Um, I've been geeking out on uh, well, the two two other big things that I do is um, I'm I'm on the board of this uh, project called High Vibe Network, um, and that's a, it's a platform for wellness. But really, what it is is I realized that to get people to change, this goes all the way back to one of your first questions, right? How do you get people or firms or organizations to change? And what I realized is, is people have a lot of baggage. So what we need are, are good, low friction on ramps for us to understand our own cognitive biases more. Anyone out there who's a trader will understand that your own cognitive biases are your biggest hurdle to successful trading. Um, and to me, trading is just about discovering value. So I did High Vibe Network as, as, a, as, a, as a, a broad um, as a broad vector of, of attacking this. You know, how do you get people to change? You have to make it easier for them. So that'll be coming out probably first half of next year. Um, I think I've learned a ton about how business like that built, and it's so different. You know, when you juxtapose that versus like a, a you know a high frequency proprietary trading firm it's like we build everything we have domain experts in this kind of uh, discipline interacting with that one it's all in house etc but for something like high vibe everything's decentralized a lot of it is open source um, the way they collaborate is crazy there is a founder and a core team around him and then development teams are spread all over the world it's, it's done in such a different way. And I, I realize that there's huge benefits. There's some drawdowns too, but huge benefits in doing that way. And it's almost like, wow, I can't even believe this can get done. So that's one thing that I, I geek out on. And I've learned a lot from uh, uh, the founder of that company, uh, now a, a really great friend of mine named Faiz Nazarali, and how he approaches problems. It's very different than an old, let's say an old school guy like myself. Uh, the other thing I've been geeking out upon is um, digital collectibles. Mm -hmm. Yeah, not not so much like CryptoKitties or anything like that, but um, you can now go and collect um, art uh, written on an Ethereum uh, chain that that is unique, and you can buy it. So there's there's sites like uh, SuperRare.co, and I. I'm not trying to be a collector. I'm not trying to be right, but I did send a bunch of um, Ethereum over, which is you have to buy it in Ethereum, just to understand why this exists, why people are paying basically a thousand, you know, fr from a couple of hundred to twenty-five, thirty thousand dollars for 
what is basically just a piece of digital art or a GIF or something like that. Um, and I think this actually, you know, before people dismiss it, you know, there's a huge swath of pre-COVID society that is ailing, and that is the creative side. You know, music, um, all kinds of artists. Like, how are they? We all understand that they're needed. Yeah. But how are they going to survive in this post-COVID world where there's no touring for music, where, you know, maybe being able to go to a gallery is heavily restricted, all these kind of things. So, you know, the world is really going to change. I, the other thing, you know, I, I stumbled onto this because I have five kids from 20 till eight. Uh, I watch them play video games and I always have them talk me through the, the tokenomics of their video game. And I, I find it totally fascinating that that generation doesn't have the same hangups as me, a Gen Xer and above have about, you know, physical ownership or, or whatever, however we view things. Um, so, you know, the, I, I like to do it because it forces me to change my perspective. It forces me to change my attitude. Mm -hmm. Yeah, those are a couple of things that I've been kind of geeking out on. Okay. Both a lot of fun too. <laughs> Cool. Well, it was really great to have you on the podcast. Thank you so much again for joining us and taking the time out to speak with me today. Um, well, we'll it's have, my we'll, pleasure, Wisham. <laughs> thank you. We'll, we'll look to have you back at another point in time. But until uh, then, take care. Thank you so much. 